0: Listen to this. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I, had, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like An ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. If you skip down to verse 1 of chapter 5, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? can open the scroll and its seven seals would you pray with me father we thank you for giving us your word we know that john gives this to us having received what you gave him we thank you holy spirit that you guided john so that what he wrote is exactly what you want us to have So we pray, Father and Spirit, that you would show us Jesus this morning and that we would never, ever interpret your word without seeing Christ and understanding better who we are and who he is, that we might, might know more of your grace, more of the good news that you want us to live by. And we pray this so that you would get glory. And we pray this with confidence because we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Remember, as we look at the book of Revelation together, that it is not like other books. So, when you read the book of Revelation, please know that you don't interpret the book of Revelation like you do your internet bill. If you do, you're going to miss it. If you do, you're going to spectacularly miss it. It's not the same kind of book as the other books of the Bible. Revelation is a picture book. It is not a code book. So if you read the book of Revelation thinking to yourself, I have to crack the code. And the more details I know and the more I read into this, the more I will understand everything that's happening. Wrong. Revelation is like an impressionistic painting. It is meant to give you impressions in which your imagination can be stirred So that the more you understand all of the scriptures, the more you understand all of the four-part story, the more this book of Revelation will make sense because we actually are supposed to read the book of Revelation as if we were a child, We're supposed to read the book as if it is giving us these pictures and images, and it is firing up our imagination for the gospel and for who Jesus is. And if we get anything else other than that from this book as a priority, we have fundamentally, spectacularly missed this book and what it's meant to say. John writes this book to a Um, original audience that thought about life through the lens of thrones and kings and crowns and kingdoms. Now, I know we don't typically think about that in in our day and age, right? But yet, oftentimes, we're kind of angling to be king and riding on the throne, Oftentimes we're thinking about our accomplishments in terms of crowns that we get. Oftentimes we think about things in terms of kingdoms and us having to wage war against another kingdom that we don't like. So just so you know, John's original audience, we can connect with them. We can understand what this book is about. We can understand what's going on. We can understand what God intends for us. So As we look at Revelation 4 and 5 this morning, I'm going to borrow the outline that I used a few weeks ago. And I also want to tell you this, that this will probably be an outline that you hear over and over and over next year because we're going to spend more time in Revelation. So here it is. The first thing we're going to do today is think about this. Don't just do something. Stand there. And secondly... We are going to think about, don't just stand there, do something. Now, this is going to be the rubric, to say it again, this is going to be the rubric by which we understand this book and we think about it together because John's favorite command is this, look, see, behold, look at this. So, it just so happens that the way that God orders our lives and the way that God communicates the gospel to us is oftentimes We have to look and see something before we go and do something. And oftentimes in our lives, we like to reverse that order. We don't want to stand there and see anything and take something in. We just want to be told what to do. And the way the gospel works is actually the opposite. We have to understand something and our hearts have to be changed before we go and do anything. So that's what we're going to do today. We're gonna look at these chapters and think about it in these ways. Don't just do something, stand there. So, let's dive in. John, look at what he says. Actually, if you have a copy of the scriptures, look back at the end of chapter three, and if you don't have a copy, it's fine. You might remember these words. Chapters two and three, John is writing to the seven churches in Asia Minor that represent the totality of God's people. And he, he writes to the last church and, and, and there's an image at the end of chapter 3 of Jesus standing at the door and knocking. Remember that? If you have any familiar with scriptures, you've probably heard that before. And, and so chapter 3 ends with a closed door. And chapter 4 begins with an open door. And it's like John is thinking about these things, thinking about a closed door and what that means, and then... He looks and sees that there's a door that's open. That's how the chapter four begins, right? So he sees this door open to heaven. And you know that John sees that door open, and I'm sure that he can see in there to some extent, and he's probably thinking to himself, what should I do? You ever had a door open up in your life, either literally or physically or metaphorically? Have you ever had a door open in your life, either physically or metaphorically, where you're like, man, I wonder if I should go? So you're thinking about it, wrestling with it. And that apparently is what John is doing because he's not sure what I should do. Should I? Shouldn't I? Should I do this? Should I not do that? And all of a sudden a voice comes to him and says, John, come on up here. John, come see. Let me show you what is going on up here. So John goes through the door and this is what he sees. John enters in through this door and he sees in the center of everything a throne. And on that throne is God. And God is so glorious and beautiful. That's why the text says that there's this, there's this person on the throne who is wrapped in stones like Jasper and Carnelian. You know, you realize that the purpose of stones is to gather and attract light and magnify it, Right? One of the the biblical descriptions of God is that he is light. So it's communicating to us that God is so glorious that these rocks are just glowing with energy and light because they are representative of God, the one who is on the throne. And then you read that around the throne, like literally around the throne in a circular manner, there is a rainbow. And then there are flashes of lightning and peals of thunder and torches and light. And that is meant to communicate to us in this impressionistic painting. It's meant to fire up our imaginations about what is a rainbow and, and what are what is, uh, peals of thunder and lightning and torches? What does all that mean? And it is to remind us that when the flood happened, after the flood was over, God then set up the rainbow in the sky. Remember? to communicate that he would never do that again. In other words, that he would govern creation through his faithfulness and through his mercy. So it's not just that the throne is communicating to us the glorious attributes of God and, and all of his rich love and grace and power. It's saying, don't you remember that this is the God of mercy? who has been governing everything since the flood, and even before that, but especially since then, with mercy. And then, thunders of lightning and peals of thunder. Remember that that's like, that was God's people when they met with him at Sinai. Remember, God brought them out of bondage, out of captivity, and he said, because I've redeemed you, I want you to live this way so that God's people remember the awesomeness of God and, in a sense, how unbelievably holy he is. And then you have, from the throne, these these torches which represent the fullness of the Spirit who's being sent out everywhere to fulfill God's mission. And then, not John not only sees the throne and God sitting on it, but then John describes like around this throne, the rainbow and the sea of glass and calm and crystal, but then he sees like these concentric circles. So if you go back and read, you'll see right close around the throne are four living creatures. And those four living creatures are mentioned for us. There's one creature that is like an ox. There's another creature that is like a lion. There's a third creature that has the face of a man. And a fourth creature that is like an eagle in flight. And that's supposed to make us think about, oh yes, ox were often used in an agrarian society. They were an animal that was domesticated. A lion, not domesticated. The face of a man representing all of mankind. An eagle representing majesty and justice and the one that flies around. That is the gift of flight. Flight. John is trying to say in this image, look, there is the throne, and then around the throne is, another, is a small circle of these four living creatures that represent the totality of creation. And then there's another circle that's bigger. So you have the throne and a small circle of the four living creatures, and then you have a larger circle of 24 thrones, that are all in a circle. And there you have the 24 elders sitting on those thrones, representing God's people from the 12 tribes and God's people from the 12 apostles. In other words, the totality of the church from the beginning all the way to now and to the end. So that these thrones of 24 elders represent all of God's people throughout time. And then you can see that John even tells us that there's a connection between the smaller circle and the bigger circle because when the small circle that represents every living thing begins to praise God, it triggers the bigger circle to start praising God. So that there's this noise and there is this worship and there is this adulation and there is this glory. But then, when you get into chapter 5, John sees something else. He looks back on the throne, and he realizes that the one that's sitting on the throne, and in his right hand, he has something like a scroll or a book. And he's holding this scroll, and John can see it. And then, an angel speaks up and says, who is worthy to take this scroll? Who is worthy to break the seals? Who is worthy to take this from God and to break it open and to reveal it? Who is worthy? And no one answers. No one responds. There's just silence. And then all of a sudden an elder speaks and says, oh, there is someone who is worthy. The someone who is worthy is a lion from the tribe of Judah. The one who is worthy is from the root of David, meaning in David's line. There is someone who is worthy. And when you read back through, what you'll find is he says there's someone who is worthy because he has conquered Because he has conquered. Of course, the elder is talking about Jesus. And John hears this. He hears what the elder says. And John looks back to the throne, just a bit to the right of the throne. And what he sees is Jesus. He sees a lamb that was slain. Now, it's at this point that you might have a couple questions. And so, let's go ahead and get those out. Here's one question you might have. The first question is this, what, what is this scroll? What, what is this? What does this mean? What is this scroll? Well, maybe we can understand it this way. The scroll, in a way, by analogy, is like a legal document. It's like what we would understand as a will. You know what a will is? If you haven't worked out a will yet, I would encourage you to do so. It's really important. Go to see a lawyer and work out a will. You need to do that. You really need to do that. When someone writes up a will, what do they put in there? They write in their will. Their will consists of what they desire once they're gone, right? Once they die, what they want to happen with the things that they have. A will communicates someone's deepest desires. It's not just doling out assets or whatever. There's all kinds of things that can be in a will. Last messages, last words, last desires. What to do with these particular gifts. I remember my dad went through his heart transplant. I remember him saying that he had an envelope in which was his will, in which he had written in there what he wanted me to say at his memorial service because he wanted me to do that. I've never read that document. My dad hasn't died. He had a successful heart transplant. But a will communicates some of the deepest desires and most precious things to someone And once they die, those uh, words and ideas are communicated. In other words, the scroll is representative of God's plan. The scroll is communicating God's plan for the entire world. The scroll is where we understand all that God wants and all that he desires and what he is about. It is communicating to us all those questions, the answers to all those questions that we have. God, why did this happen? And why did that happen? And what about this? And make sense of that. The scroll is where all of the answers are kept. It's there that we understand all that God wants and the totality of his plan. So that's what it is. What in the world does it mean? Well, it means that Jesus is the only one who is able to explain to us the plans of God and his desires. Jesus is the only one And there's something that John is highlighting for us about Jesus. Remember, he looks to the right of the throne and what does he see? He sees a lamb that was slain. In other words, John is telling us in verse 6 of chapter 5 how this one who is worthy, who's from the root of David, who is a lion of the tribe of Judah, how this person, how this person conquered and how he is worthy to open the scroll and to break the seals and to communicate God's plans to us. He Is worthy because he conquered. He conquered by being slain. Do you see that? Beloved, this is the message of the gospel that Jesus won precisely because he died. Jesus won precisely because he was willing to give up his life for people like you and me. The reason why Jesus conquered is because he was willing to go to the cross. And the reason that I'm saying this over and over and over is because the message of Christianity is counterintuitive. The message of Christianity is not, let me give you a new set of morals, and if you just follow those, you'll get your way to heaven. That's not the message of Christianity. That's not the message of Jesus. The message of Christianity is try to be a good person. That's not the message. The message of Christianity is not, Jesus has done 99%, you just need to add faith to it. That's not the message. The message is that Jesus conquered by giving up his life. The message of Christianity is absolutely counterintuitive. It's not the way that we use God to get a result that we want. It is that we surrender all that we are to God because Jesus has first surrendered his life for us to God. Victory comes through losing. It's really hard to find illustrations of this. You know, whether it's in the church or outside the church, it's really hard because we so often turn this message of Christianity into a self-help thing, into a get-what-we-want thing, and to make ourselves look good thing. It's so hard to illustrate this. A couple years ago, I was watching uh, any Marvel fans here very good, very good. I was watching Doctor Strange with the family. And there's this encounter of Doctor Strange with this uh, uh, um, unbelievably dark figure, Dormammu. And in this scene, remember Strange, Doc, for those of you that aren't aware, Doctor Strange is a Marvel character and his weapon is time. And Dormammu is a dark figure and one of his weapons is Death. And there's this moment in which Dr. Strange has come to Dormammu and they are going back and forth and Dormammu can't stand Dr. Strange and so he kills him. And Dr. Strange comes back and he says and Dormammu says to Dr. Strange you will never win and Dr. Strange says I know but I can lose. And he willingly dies and he comes back And he says, see, I can win. You can't, death doesn't scare me. And Dormammu says, make it stop. And Strange says, no, you are my prisoner. Beloved, Jesus did the same thing. That is a shadow of the gospel. That is a glimpse of what Jesus has done. He looks at our enemy and he willingly gave himself. So that the greatest weapon that our enemy has is death. And Jesus took it and it couldn't hold him. So that as we live our lives, we aren't constantly trying to win. And that doesn't mean that we're trying to live our lives to be a doormat. It means that we are willing to give up control and we are willing to lose Because by losing, that is where we find life and victory. Remember I told you that this was an impressionistic painting? Images, a picture book? Well, I want you to know that this picture book comes with sounds. Very quickly, it comes with sounds. Look at chapter 4 and verse 8. Here's the first song. The first song is praising God for who He is, that He is holy and He is eternal. Then when you move on from verse 8 of chapter 4, you see in verse 11 there's another song. And that song is adding to the previous song in which it is praising God not only for His holiness and His eternality, who was and is and is to come. This song in verse 11 is praising God because He's the one that created everything, and by Him, things exist. And then you move into chapter 5, and you see another song. And in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, what you find out is something else is added. This is the new song in which we have Jesus. And now that is added as a verse to the song in which Jesus is the one who is worthy. And then you look in verse 12 and you find that there's an innumerable number of angels in verse 12 of chapter 5 that joins in in praising Jesus for being worthy who was worthy because he was slain. And then you look in verse 12, excuse me, 13 of chapter 5, and what you find is that the totality of creation, everyone and everything is praising God and worshiping God because Jesus is king and he will be on the throne forever. So even as you're trying to put all these images together, know that there's music with it. And there's crescendo and there is, Incredible adulation and worship such that John and us, so that we could never be the same. Beloved, don't just do something, stand there and be in awe of this image and this scene. But I know we're gonna talk about what to do. So quickly, very quickly, and look, if you're, if you're one of those who is, who is like addicted to doing and can't stop thinking about what you're trying to do all the time, then, then maybe minimize this next section in your life and maximize this first section that we've just been spending time thinking about together, okay? Because it really matters that we get a sense of the heaven and the throne and the circles and praising God. But for those of us that need a little bit of help about what to do, let's do two things here. I'll try to do this quickly. What do we do with this? The first thing is worship. John is telling us to worship. And that may make no sense to you whatsoever. I mean, I could, I could understand how the original audience would not be a lot different from us. Meaning, John would communicate this vision and, the, and I can just hear the people because there's some of this in my own life. I can just hear the people receiving this from John and saying, great John, but uh, life is going on over here. Like, uh, you know, I'm struggling with my marriage, or uh, I, got a, I got a really hard time at work, or I'm struggling knowing what to do with this viruses everywhere and having to make decisions based upon that. I've got challenges with my children. Uh, I'm single and I'm happy about it, but I got all kinds of other questions about my career and I don't know what to do. Um, God, uh, I, I, I'm kind of depressed. I mean, there are all kinds of things that are happening. There's conflict, Remember? John writes to a people in which there was conflict inside and outside the church. There's persecution going on. The church is growing, but yet there's all the, oh, and John is exiled. So I can understand how you would sit at this vision and think, oh, well, he wants us to worship. Well, what about life? I got all kinds of questions. How in the world does this connect with my life? I want you to tell me something else. And John says, no. God through John says, no, I want you to worship worship and that means that we have to do some serious reflection and serious thinking about this what is it that grips your heart really what is it what is it that really gets you going What is it that has the affection of your heart? What is it that is on your mind all the time? I'm talking about those moments where you finally are still, what are the thoughts that come to your mind? What are you grinding on all the time? What is it that your heart is really attached to? I'm not talking about can you answer a Christian test with a pen and paper What is your heart attached to? What what is it that makes you want to sacrifice for someone else? What is it that makes you want to absorb the, the challenges and the consequences of being in relationship with people? What is it? What is it that has a hold of your heart? that makes you want to obey, that makes you want to believe. What is it? Because John is saying it needs to be God. That we should never obey because we want to get something out of it. That would mean that our obedience is conditional. God, I'm gonna do this as long as this will happen. And when this doesn't happen, we begin to blame God and we begin to show him our record. That's not living by the gospel. John says, in the midst of your life, a.k.a. persecution, challenging, everything else, in the midst of that, worship. Because if we have a right sense of God and a sense of who he is and how powerful he is, that will enable us to want to sacrifice for others. It will enable us to want to absorb the consequences of being in relationship with other people. It will make us want to obey God when at times we know we might be able to get away with disobedience at least among other people what is it that has gripped your heart because John is wanting us to worship God and have our hearts gripped by God and who he is and beloved that means that we can come to God acknowledging that there are some other things in our lives that are at war with God And we can say that and confess it. It's okay. He knows we're not perfect more than we do, more than we're willing to admit. Worship God. Second, follow Him. Follow Him. And yes, there is overlap here between worship and follow, and that is intentional. I'm trying to get us to go deeper with this. Follow Him. Follow God. You see, did you notice in the text where it talks about how the, the creatures and everyone, what, what, they were throwing down, they were casting down their crowns? You remember reading that? That, that is showing that those who are around the throne were, were giving up control. It's communicating that they were getting lost in being caught up with God. It's communicating that we are supposed to surrender all that we are to God. You see, this is where, to take a step deeper than the first point, this is where you really got to think about not only what is your heart, what, what grips your heart, but to go a little bit deeper. What is it that you worship? because you always lose control to what you worship. Do you realize that? I mean, think about it. I know this is more than just thinking about your actions. This is more than just thinking about every decision in terms of being right or wrong. No, this is going deep into your heart, at least I hope. You always lose control to what you worship. So, If you worship your bank account and finances, then you will be emotionally high when that's going great and low when it's not. In other words, you've lost control to your finances. If love is what you worship, then you will lose control to love. And when the person that you love doesn't love you back, you'll be really upset. If they don't love you in the way that you want to be loved, you'll be really upset. When they love you the way you want to be loved, you will put more and more on them. You'll lose control to what you worship. If you worship approval, then what that means is in your daily life, you will constantly be trying to get these people, whoever they are, to approve of you. And you won't be able to stand it when they don't. Why? You've lost control. You worship approval we always lose control to what we worship And it is very hard to get the gospel deep down in our hearts so that it goes beyond passing the test. It goes way beyond just knowing right and wrong. It gets into our hearts and starts changing us so we actually start reflecting about our lives and realizing, oh man, my job has way too much control on my life. All approval of these people has way, I am controlled by that. Children. If your idol is raising your children, then you will be devastated if they ever do anything in public that you're embarrassed of because you've lost control. You won't ever be able to be honest with someone about what's going on inside of you in your relationship because you've lost control. You can't stand it if someone sees that this happens because you've lost control because you worship your family. John is saying, don't just worship God. He's saying, give up control and follow him. Surrender all that you are. Follow God as if he has absolute control over every detail of your life. And don't even live as if you can kind of bargain with him. I'm going to do this so I can get that. No. Beloved, we're supposed to give everything to God. Everything. Every motive. Every action. Every thought. So that he is sovereign over us. I've got to stop here. Uh, a few years ago, a, a pastor from our denomination, uh, that, that he pastored a church in Nashville. Uh, I've kind of known him from a distance. He um, He retired. And uh, he wrote a little commentary on Revelation. I want to read part of it to you. I'm happy to email it to you if you're you're desirous of reading more about this. But I wanted to read this to you because like like Scotty, um, this pastor I'm going to read, following God has been a lifelong struggle for me too. It's hard to follow God, isn't it? For me. It is. It's hard to know that he's in absolute control all the time. This is what he said. Coming to accept and rest in the sovereignty of God has been a lifelong struggle of mine. Starting with an episode of sexual abuse when I was just eight. A story I never voiced or dealt with until well after turning 50. Three years later, when I was 11, my mom was killed in a car wreck. My dad was so devastated, he didn't speak her name for the next 40 years, the same amount of time it took me to return to mom's grave. It made no sense to me that God would leave me motherless just as I was beginning those precarious adolescent years. I lamented it then, I lament it now. But God has indeed proven to me That his name is Redeemer. The Bible never states our God does all things easily, but that he does all things well. Our Father doesn't always answer our questions, but he always gives us himself. In many seasons of life, the glorious truth of God's sovereignty has been put to the test. Can you relate to this? As a pastor, I've walked our church through the brutal murder of one of our pastors by his jealous son in law. The tragic death of Stephen Curtis and Mary Beth Chapman's adopted daughter when her brother accidentally ran over her. Stillborn deaths of precious image bearers of God and suicide deaths of believers whose pain was more real than God's love in the crisis. Of their despair. And just hours after I finished writing the first manuscript of Unveiled Hope, on the Monday after Easter in 1996, I received the heart-wrenching news that my mentor and discipler for 21 years had been taken to heaven. I never begrudged Jack one day in heaven, but his death happened on the cusp of my most difficult season of life, and it took years for me to recover from the resulting burnout. Oh, the despair that would have filled my soul if I did not believe with every fiber of my being that God loves and that he is in control. Thank God there is a joyful, peaceful, and totally occupied throne in heaven.